0: Infirmary Media. Art. People engaged to stop the Jewel in Decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the Power Glove. Come fight for what you love.
1: Jewel Decades. Who
0: culture popping pins, dropping hand grenades? Fan, Haler luck in Mortal combat with David Gray. Span a ballet and sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love.
1: Jewel in Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios. It's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. Let's take a look at this week's duelers and the decades they will be fighting for on this special throwback triple threat. I am Mark James, and I will be representing April of 1980 against these men. First off, with April of 1993 say hello to man crush what
0: up it's man crush i feel like we were just here like 35 minutes ago with vernon wells but it's actually been a couple days and i'm i'm glad we're doing the game the way this is today this is a triple threat matchup where we only have one pick a piece which is fantastic because i would not have had time to do another two pick episode (laughs) in the same week so let's get it on fellas
1: In Dueling with April of 1986, he is the host of the Miscast Commentary Podcast. Welcome back to the show, Joe Finley.
2: Hey, everybody. How's it going? While this might not be the ideal three-way I would have asked for, I will say that being so isolated that it's a lot more tempting than it would have been maybe six months ago.
1: You're (laughs) in the middle. That's all I'm saying.
2: I know. I am in the middle, too. (laughs) Like, geez. You guys know what you like.
1: (laughs) As always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So he's back, ladies and gentlemen, the bad boy from Beantown, the hilarious host of the Selling Out Show, Judge Dave Schultz.
3: Hello, hello, hello. I am happy to be back and to judge all three of you. (laughs) (laughs) We missed you.
2: Uh, I'm sure you did. He's not even interested in hearing our picks. He's like, I'm going to judge you.
0: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) He's already been judging since
3: we started. That's right. By the way you look, and you've all lost.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and of course, hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And the winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. All right, duelers, who said only bad things come in threes? Let's play some more. Dueling decades. Let's go right down to our judge, Dave Schultz, for the official toss-off.
3: Okay, right on. I brought something really cool, and it's actually rattier than Man Crush's beard, but it is a VHS copy, cover rather, because I'm not going to leave the cassette in there, of uh, 1989's Batman film. So on the front, we have the Batman insignia, Say No More, and then on the back, we have a picture of Jack Nicholson in full Joker garb in the smile, and... um. Who just turned 83
0: this week. You did. We put the pictures together on our Facebook. And uh, I always try to find one of you know them in the 80s and the 90s and pair it up with a, a recent picture. And if you type in, I didn't use this picture because I thought it was mean. But if you go to Google Images and type in like Jack Nicholson 2020, there's a bunch of pictures of him at Lakers games, like stuffing his face. And there's <laughs> one and it's all over the place. The bottom of his stomach is just sticking out of his shirt. And it's just like fat, like kind of like if I was just like slunched over and he's just stuffing his face with chips or fries, whatever the fuck it is. It's the most unappealing photo ever. Living
1: the dream, baby. Living
0: (laughs) the dream. At 83, you don't give a fuck.
2: He's been professionally sitting and watching things for the last 15 years. He's doing (laughs) fuck. Yeah. (laughs) His kids are young, too. Fuck.
1: All right. So how we're going to do the coin toss this week is the first round. It's going to be me versus man crush. And then the winner will face Joe to see who goes first. Somehow I got the bye week. Man Crush, why don't you call it in the air for this first toss-off?
0: All right. Well, I don't know when he's throwing
3: it because he well, can't no, see I, I Well, no, I want you to pick first. Do you want the, the Batman logo? I'm going want... to go fucking Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. Okay. All right. Here it goes up in the air. Junior Birdman. It is the front cover Batman insignia logo. Mm, that means I won, right? No. no you picked the
2: jokey, <laughs> you dumb
1: schmuck. <laughs> All right, so it'll be me versus Joe. Joe, why don't you call it this time?
2: All right, well, I'm going to go for the Batman insignia. He's what we need right now. And this one, yep, hey, guess what?
3: Batman logo again, so there you go, Joe. What do you know? It's weighted. It's an important day. All
1: right, Joe, you win the toss-off. You have control of the board. What category are we going with for this first triple threat match?
2: All right, let's go with quote-unquote hot products. I am going to start with a hot book, a New York New York Times number one bestseller, uh, one that is known to all not so much for the book but for the movie upon which it was based. On April twentieth, uh, Robert Ludlum's *The Bourne Supremacy* was the New York Times number one bestseller. Um, this book finds Jason Bourne, who has, in the book, recovered his memory and is teaching in Maine under his proper name, David Webb, finds out that somebody else is out there killing people under the name Jason Bourne, and he has to get back into the game to find out what's going on. And while all that's going on, his lovely girlfriend, who is not European but Canadian in this version, so there, there's that, and she has been abducted, so she, he's got to figure that out as well. So the Bourne supremacy, which leads to the big trilogy and that and continuing on from there, a uh, series of movies uh, in the early 2000s and continuing on till today uh, but yeah all the way back then 1986 was the sequel book born supremacy
3: sounds terrible <laughs> <laughs> fucking girlfriends Canadian oh my god
2: yeah so she probably didn't exist right
3: yeah she must have an ugliest sin are you kidding me Those girls north of the border, let me tell you. (laughs) All
1: right, so I'll go next for hot products. I went over to our good friends over at newspapers.com, and I'm flipping through some newspapers from the Billings Gazette out of Billings, Montana, April 13th, 1980. And I find an ad here in the paper from Eli's Records and Tapes. Great ad. I don't know if you're from Billings, Montana. Maybe you remember Eli's there's an ad here in the paper for a brand new video game that you can buy for your Atari 2600 called Space Invaders. The ad reads, Space Invaders, people have been standing in line at arcades to play Space Invaders. Now thanks to Atari, they can play at home. Space Invaders Game Program Cartridge, a blockbuster new video game for your Atari video computer system. It is you against the fiendish invaders from an alien galaxy. Your objective to destroy them before they can drop their "quote unquote" laser bombs on the Earth. It's not as easy. The invaders are quick, clever, and protected by neutron shields. But if you're quick enough, you might even gun down their command ship. Special price while our first shipment lasts. List price 29.95, Eli's sale price 24.95 for Space Invaders. So that's what I got from my hot product. One of the greatest games of all time. The great space invaders now available on the Atari 2600 for your disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) That was the thing, man. I mean, of course, space invaders came out in 78 monumental game. And then when you got it in the Atari, it just wasn't quite the same, but you know what? It was one of the top sellers for the Atari 2600 and the game's gone down in history. So that's what I got from my hot product man crush
0: over to you all right so i'm the only one with the 90s so we're gonna go to april 28th 1993 and here is the first video game to feature the cd-rom you know as you would know in the early 90s cd-roms they were still pretty early in their domestic lives at this point you know people were just starting to get them in their homes but they're still fairly pricey in 1993 a drive would cost about 400 bucks so it's like what like a thousand dollars in 2020 to get one of these things this was during a time when these drives they still had caddies. Do you guys remember that? Like you'd have to take the disk, put it in the caddy and then slide that shit into your computer.
1: Oh, that wasn't a place to put my soda?
0: It was not. <laughs> well, I have a good story about that that I'll tell one day, but I'm not going to do it now. Uh but that's how long ago this was. I think I had that caddy drive up until like the mid to late 90s. Oh yeah. To be honest. Uh but up to this point there were no games on CD-ROM. At least none that featured real life actors. It had an actual like cinematic feel to it. The game was a, it was a big deal at the time. It was heavily talked about coming out. It had a massive video game budget at the time. These people speculated that I think it was Trilobyte and Virgin Interactive that they spent over a million bucks on the game. And this is 1993, so that's a lot of money to put on a game. But it was also it was like the first game that I remember that had like an adultish feel to it, and not like the Leisure Suit Larry style adult but more of like the horror feel to it yeah uh everything was pre-rendered 3d graphics it had two discs so you know it's good uh had real (laughs) digital music it had real live action video bill gates even called this game the new standard of interactive entertainment uh would go on to sell 2 million copies for the pc and mac which in 1993 that's an amazing feat to become the top-selling cd-rom game By 1995. And this kind of led, and you can find this all over the place online, they kind of give credit to this game making that whole CD-ROM market just because people were like, oh shit, that can do that. And I don't know if you guys remember the ill-fated Philips CDI, the compact disc interactive. It was super expensive. They made this game for that too, and it played the best on that, but they made it for PC, Mac, it was on for everything. But this is the horror adventure puzzle game, The 7th
1: Guest. Yeah, I thought that was the game you were going for. At first, I thought you were talking Mist.
0: Well, Mist was the other one that came out after. Great this game. This was the, the original. It was, and then it had five fucking sequels or some shit, too.
1: Yeah, that, that was the thing with those games is the graphics at the time. There was nothing out there that could touch it because they were actually using video rendering.
0: Yeah, there was real people. Yeah, it was amazing. It was, like, they had real actors in the game and shit. Right. It was a big fucking deal. I would, You know, like some of these games, it's kind of like a movie. I'm not like a retro gamer, and I talk to Mike Ranger about this stuff sometimes. How does it feel to play these games? I think if you're a retro gamer, it's cool. But if you're not, and you just go back and play an old game, you're like, oh, this is fucking garbage. I wonder how this game would hold up. I don't know. Or any game to me. Like in Space Invaders, I think that's part of that whole retro game aspect where it doesn't matter if it's bad. You could still... Have fun with it.
1: Yeah. Well, the game's so simplistic that it's so it's yeah so easy to pick up and play.
0: Exactly. And then on the complete opposite end, you got my game, which was way more difficult, and you know it was all puzzles. And yeah, people would
1: never figure out that game now. The graphics are just wouldn't hold up to even then, as great oh, as no. those graphics mm, were then. Yeah. wouldn't hold up to what you have now, and people wouldn't even be able to figure it out. Like what is what's that? Well, I think that's to that's be? part of
0: the reason <laughs> that the retro games from 1980 since they're so simple they weren't trying very hard so it's okay but like the early 90s games where they're trying to render real graphics and real people and they look like total shit or like weird robot box weirdos that they have in the games you're like ah this is weird i can't play this but anyhow that's my game it's the seventh guest for my hot product from april 28th 1993
1: all right, all three picks are in for the hot products round. Let's toss it over to Judge Dave Schultz for the ruling.
3: You know, Man Crush never gets to the fucking point with these things. He he leads you around, and, and he starts... I mean, listen, there must have been some guy, or there is some guy right now listening to the show who is a seventh guest fanboy who the whole time was getting wet, going, yeah, I know what he's talking about, man. I love that fucking game. That, you know, but for me... It, it, you talked and talked about it. I'm like, I have no idea what the hell he's he's talking about. And then finally, you just go, yeah. So anyway, uh, by the way, the game's called The Seventh Guest. So uh, that's my pick. You know, you didn't name drop the product in the beginning. But hey, that's boring. Uh, to me, if
0: I come out of the gate and mm-hmm. I go, my game is The Seventh Guest, and you've never heard of it, you're going to be like, what
3: the fuck is The Seventh Guest garbage? Well, I mean, all the details are still the same, right? You're still going to hit yeah. us with all that, that juicy yeah. info. It, it's
0: not the same, though, because you know what? It's like anything else. Like, if I was listening to a show and somebody dropped something that I, I didn't care for or I didn't know what it was, I might just skip it and just mm-hmm. forward. Okay. This way they can't. They got to wait.
2: I'll defend Man Crush. He's giving you the, uh, the Mad Men pitch.
3: Wet that whistle.
0: I'm building a fucking picture, Dave. <laughs> I'm drawing a picture like Bob Ross. You just got to wait for it to fucking yeah. be done.
3: Oh, I can't wait to get lost in your happy trees, man crush. Especially the ones growing on your face right now. You like that?
0: I got more on the uh, the right side than I had to do on the left side. It's more of a shrub
3: than a tree at this point. There <laughs> you go. I got to give props to Joe for actually bringing up a book. Remember those people? A book. Yeah. Even though Mark and Man Crush came both with video games Mark, um, Space Invaders released on the Atari 2600. You mentioned it's not the original release of the game. It came out in 1978. Uh, Joe, back to the Born Supremacy book real quick. This was the first book? This was the second book. The second book. Okay. Yeah. Now, see, my, you know where I'm going with this? Is if it was the first book, it would have been much more impressive to me as that was the catalyst for all the things that you mentioned that followed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well, I don't control time. No, you don't. No, you
2: <laughs> You don't? Not yet. I'm working on it.
3: He wishes he did. But I, looking at all this right now, I'm going to have to go with 1993 and Man Crush and his long-winded explanations <laughs> of a product before he reveals the name of the product because the CD-ROM, the first CD-ROM game is a very impressive feat. And it set the table for a lot of entertainment that we all enjoy to this very day. It, it wasn't just that, too. I mean, the part of the point I was
0: trying to make is people bought these CD-ROMs not just for the gaming aspect, but they were like, oh, wow, it can do that. I'll buy one. And now they have a CD-ROM and then programs started coming out on CD-ROM. So it, it wasn't just that. It was
3: yeah, uh, but kind dude, of a catalyst for a lot of other things. It, yeah, it was. But, I mean, it's still enjoyable to this day. I use my copy of The Seventh Guess as a Frisbee. So, <laughs> still rocking and rolling with that fucking CD-ROM. I love it. It's like my buddy was throwing around his dad's uh, Eric Clapton unplugged CD. Oh,
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember one summer we were at camp, and I had an argument with this guy when CDs had first come out. He had a Beastie Boys CD, and he's like, man, he's like, it's bullshit. People say these things don't scratch. That's bullshit. They're just lying to you. CDs do not scratch. He's like, I threw it up against a cement wall. Still plays. CDs don't scratch, dude. I'm like, whatever. Time will tell on this one. <laughs> I'm going to tell you you're wrong. Yeah. Newsflash, you lose. Yeah.
2: Maybe he just thought that Beastie Boys album went. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, man, Crush. You won the first round. You take control of the board. What category are we going with next?
0: All right. I think we're going to go television. April 21st, 1993. Here's the debut of a debut. It's a CBS classic. It was on. It lasted for uh, eight or nine seasons. It all depends on how you want to categorize the pilot season, because the first season was like one of those where it's like four episodes. Obviously, it started in April. Uh, it also had a spinoff called The Sons of Thunder, fucking juggernaut. There, uh, came back in 2005. Uh, it had a TV movie, and it's currently being rebooted on the old CW. So we got real legs on this one. You like that, Dave? We got. I kicked that off early. It's got legs, keeps moving. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the show would routinely get ratings in the 11 to 12 million an episode. Typically it would be found in the top 20 for the week, it, which is not too damn shabby. And I'm sure Joe, see if you agree with me on this. Right. It's a show that aired Saturday night at 9 PM, which is what it's relegated for like dead air reruns and old movies, but not for this nine year period. Yeah. This show was kicking ass at that time slot for whatever reason. Is that kind of accurate? Saturday nights, it's,
2: yeah, it's um, it's a little different now than it was then, but definitely back then it was. I I would say that that would be considered kind of a dead zone.
0: Exactly, and but the show did fantastic. Uh, being that they had a consistent flow of watchers, and they had this awesome product placement deal with Dodge in the show. Where all the good guys drove Dodges, all the bad guys drove Fords or GM, and supposedly anyone that died drove a Chevy. <laughs> I didn't watch the show enough to know this. I'll have to uh, hit up uh, Mike Ranger, talk to him about this. But the, uh, the female co-star on the show, Alex Cahill is her name. She played the district attorney. Uh, her life is like worse than fucking John McClane. She was kidnapped 22 times and shot multiple times in eight seasons. Holy She's shit. the fucking D.A. The district attorney, and she's getting kidnapped <laughs> fucking twenty two times. Is that not happening to people? Name another DA; they get kidnapped that much. Like, what fucking like SVU? Did that DA get
3: kidnapped twenty times? I think she fuck did. No. I really did do. She, t- she she got like abducted. I think every other episode, right?
0: Oh fuck! Well, there that's out the window. But she wasn't boning motherfucking Chuck Norris like this chick was. Hell no. Which is. Which is why she got her ass saved on each one of these fucking 22 attempts on her life. Uh, but this is the debut of the Chuck Norris classic for old people and Mike Ranger's brother, Walker, Texas Ranger. And uh, you have AIDS.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that is the best. That's oh. one of the best things ever.
0: Walker told me I have AIDS. <laughs> I can't get over that. That's the best line. That's amazing. But that's it. Uh, Yeah. April 21st, 1993, we got a Walker, Texas Ranger. All
2: right. Joe Finley, what do you have? So a little bit of background here. I want to talk about Geraldo Rivera for a moment. Yeah. Uh, Just coming off of uh, getting fired from his TV show for uh, what he he says originally was he was trying to uh, leak a story about the relationship between Marilyn Monroe and JFK. And then he was let go from his network and he had this big special. He wanted to break back into the world. And so he syndicated and produced his on his own. This special. It was a two hour special that was, uh, that aired on April 21st 1986. And it was called the mystery of Al Capone's vault.
0: Oh, that that's come
2: up before. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And yes, it is, uh, Obviously, about opening a secret vault in Al Capone's vault in uh, his uh, Lexington Hotel, uh, which was abandoned and they had discovered this. Basically, the entire special was leading up to what's going to be in the vault, that sort of thing. It actually is credited for inventing that sort of theoretical news that still exists to this day where you just have a shot of an empty podium and they talk for two hours about the press conference that's about to happen. So as we all know that ended with them opening that vault and only not but some dirt and bottles were in there. Uh he tried to spin it it didn't work. He ends up apologizing at the end, disappointed in himself. But 30 million people watched that special. It is to this day the highest rated syndicated special to ever air on television, beating out uh, the Frost Nixon interviews. It is a giant special. Most people know about this it is a pop culture reference everywhere the simpsons references all sorts of things uh it's a pretty big deal in tv and it's one of the go-to things that geraldo is remembered for other than getting his nose broken by a nazi or (laughs) revealing some uh some military uh, locations while embedded in iraq so that's what i've got is the mystery of al capone's vault from april 21st 1986
1: All right, for my television pick, we're going to go to April 11th, 1980 on the ABC Network for the debut of a brand new late night comedy TV show called Fridays. I don't know if you guys remember this show at all, but, uh, you know, it gave us uh, Larry David and Michael Richards for the very first time, of course, of Seinfeld fame. Now, what was great about this show is it was almost kind of a complete copy of SNL because SNL was kind of failing at the time. Matter of fact, they even brought in a lot of the same special guests, such as Andy Kaufman, Billy Crystal, Mark Hamill, George Carlin. But unfortunately, the show did not last as long because of motherfucking Ted Koppel. Yes, Ted Koppel, they gave him an hour-long show at the end of the night, which kind of absorbed into the time slot that Friday's was in, because they were doing updates on the current situation with the Iran hostage scandal, and so... What happened with Fridays is they tried to move it to midnight.
2: To Thursdays.
1: No, this went to (laughs) Fridays technically as the first show on Saturday.
2: Saturday morning.
1: So they're like, that's not going to work. We'll put the show in prime time. So they put it in a prime time slot. The show failed miserably, didn't find its audience. Yeah, that's the unfortunate reality of Fridays. But the show still remains to be a cult classic. People love it. Um, It was kind of just unfortunate that it got stuck in a horrible time slot. But it did give us Larry David and Michael Richards uh, later on after the show folded. Dick Ebersol actually asked most of the cast to join SNL. The only one really to do it was Larry David of note. So, And he got shit canned. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Smart
1: move there. So that's what I got. April 11th, 1980, the debut of Fridays. What a shitty lead in.
0: Can you imagine watching Ted Koppel yeah.
1: and then watching comedy after that? Well, like, well, that's so, what that's happened fun. eventually. I mean, Koppel was only a half an hour. And then they're like, you know, we're going to give Ted a full hour. <laughs> Everyone fell asleep. <laughs> yeah, after watching an hour of Ted Koppel, no one was awake. So, All right, so let's go down to Judge Dave Schultz for the ruling for the television
3: round. Hmm. These are all noble, good choices. I like all of them for individual reasons. Now, Fridays, I love Larry David. I love Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm. So for that reason alone, Fridays is impressive to me. Plus, it's a great restaurant. I love their appetizers, (laughs) all the flair the waiters and waitresses wear. Can't get enough of it.
1: Don't ask them about their flair, though. They
3: hate that. (laughs) Never ask about the flair. 93, Chuck Norris, and that was Walker, Texas Ranger. Did I say that right? Yeah. Yeah, see, I never really watched it. But you did mention the DA got kidnapped 22 times. And I just say, try being a DA down in Mexico. That's probably <laughs> not even touching the numbers that they experience south of the border. And Joe came with 86, the Al Capone's vault, the failure there by Geraldo. And that is just, I mean, famous. Everybody knows about that. And that actually, for maybe some kudos points or bonus po- points in this round, do any of you have a favorite talk show host? From way back when, Morton. Oh, Mort, Morton Downey Jr. Is that what you just said? Man, Crush. Morton Downey, yeah. Okay, so you like loud, chained, smoking assholes. I just, you know, why I liked it because I watched it with my dad. Okay.
0: It was like the late night WOR. I think it was on at like ten or something. But yeah, it was it was great. You know, I for an only knew him
2: from his bit with uh, Roddy Piper at WrestleMania. That's the only reason I knew him. Like it was, I, I was too young for for that so that was the first time i came across him and then i heard of robert downey jr and i'm like oh they must be related and that was
0: <laughs> <point>. <laughs> That's, no. you can probably watch it on youtube i'm sure there's uh clips or maybe oh, whole probably. episodes it's dude literally smoked the entire time he was on the show oh yeah cigarette <laughs> just dangling out of his mouth it's
3: fucking great yeah.
1: i actually attended a taping of the geraldo talk show once but truth be told i'm more of a phil donahue fan
3: Ooh, that's a good one. That is a good one. Now, now, Joe, you know, north yeah. of the border, I was just talking about the DA mm-hmm. south of the border. They didn't have any uh, Sally Jesse Raphael A eh, up there or anything, or
2: <laughs> they did. Uh, but I mean, we got, we still get all the shows you guys get. You do know that, right? <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, no. listen, I get it, but they, they might be, What you're saying is not foreign to me. Dave <laughs>
0: makes it sound like Joe's in Bangladesh or some
3: shit. <laughs> no, I'm not trying to imply he's on the other side of the world here, but they must maybe have yeah. some more local, you know.
2: They, they do. And actually, um, right when uh, Mark said he had attended a taping, I was going to mention, I went to a, du- a double taping of uh, one person's name was Dini Petty. And then another person was Camilla Scott. Camilla Scott was more like the Ricky Lake of Canada. Oh,
1: yeah. She is thick.
2: Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Uh, And the the episode that I went and saw introduced a young man from Ottawa who was doing a cable access show where he was pranking his parents a lot. And that guy's name was Tom Green. Mm. This was before Uh, he was famous.
3: Wow. Did you get up and call him
2: a hoe? No, I did get on the show, though. I got a comment on the show, and my buddy tried to make a comment, too, and he thought he was being really funny, and then when it was finished, Camille looked at him, and she's like, is that it? And he was like, all right. And then he sat back down, and he was cut out of the show.
3: Wow, look at that. We can try to find Joe and Mark in their TV debuts on someone else's talk show, you know? That'd be some good (laughs) points for the listeners to try to dig up and find, huh?
2: You'll never know who I am with hair. (laughs) Okay.
3: Well listen, uh as much as I respect Larry David, Mac Fridays is off the board. I'm sorry, but the show had no staying power whatsoever. Yeah. And when you're talking about uh, Chuck Norris here, there's this unspeakable power. There's Machismo. There there's so much, you know, legendary action, fists of fury coming from Chuck Norris, especially in a cowboy hat. So right now I'm looking at Joe and Man Crush's pick. And both have cultural re- relevance here. Oh, mine's got legs. Y- yeah, yours has legs. You said they're going <laughs> to reboot the damn thing, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: it's uh, it's the dude from Supernatural, uh, Jared Padowiecki or whatever the
1: fuck his name is. Yeah, he was on the Gilmore Girls. My wife told me that. Yeah, he's
0: going to be the new uh, walker. <laughs> Hmm. Nice. which somebody lost their shit in our Facebook group if, facebook.com forward slash dueling decades if you're not there yet we always have to throw that out there but somebody lost their shit on a post they were like what is this bullshit liberal America and you can't have Jared pa-. I was like I had to ban the guy <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> you're so mad about te- like okay man sorry hey all right, sorry. At, le-
1: at least they're arguing and bitching about Walker Texas Ranger yeah <laughs>
0: He was really mad. He was upset about it. All right.
1: <laughs> wow. Hope he calmed down. <laughs> no, no, He's still going. <laughs> it was me.
3: <laughs> you didn't recognize him because he had hair. You see, he was. Uh... <laughs> but yeah, guys, uh, great picks here. But uh, it looks like I'm gonna have to go 93 again, just because of the longevity of the holy program. Shit. And yeah, holy shit, is right. And plus, you know, wow, it, it's a show that people seem to just love for some reason. I couldn't tell you why, but when you bring it up, people always have memories of it, whether it's about AIDS or <laughs> one-liners or anything else. <laughs> that alone. But that'll, no, round. that shouldn't win the round. But I mean, that's one of those notable yeah. things. But yeah, I'm going to have to give it again to 93. But this one's close. Uh, Joe was right right there. Oh, man. Okay, so where do I go from here?
0: Um, let's go to movies, because I'm a little concerned that these guys are going to have juggernauts and I'm up two points. So fuck it. Let's do movies now. <laughs> right. Smack dab in the middle with April 7th, 1993. And uh, this one, it's a time period movie and I'm not usually big on time period flicks, especially when they are decades that I didn't grow up in. Uh, it's not a film noir like Vernon Wells was talking about last week, just movies in general from decades they, like, they have to be really spectacular for me to get into them. Do you guys feel the same way? Like, if you're not from that decade, you have to be, like, really wowed because you don't know the shit that's going on?
1: No, see, I kind of like period pieces, man. I think, Do you? I think it's nice to kind of travel to a different time for... Know at least a
0: couple well, of. it's because you're high all the time. So, good point.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I mean, I get that. It's just like if they put out a movie now about the '80s or '90s, it could be a total shit bomb movie. But I'll still watch it because there'll be things in the movie that I'm like, "Oh shit, look at that! It's a fucking GI Joe or some shit." <laughs> <laughs> but like these movies, this one, uh anywho, I mean, this one it took place in the summer of 1962. And uh, and even though it's it's a positive, upbeat movie, it reminds me of Stand By Me, which is another 60s time frame movie. And I really like that one, too. And even though they have a few core things in common, Stand By Me is Stephen King, for example. This movie has Wendy Peppercorn and James Earl Jones. All right? Little differences. Uh, this one went <laughs> on to make about $34 million at the box office, which is about $63 million in 2020. It spurned off two direct-to-video sequels, so that's success right there. It gave us lines like, this kid is an L7 weenie. You play ball like a
1: girl.
0: And of course, Mark.
1: You're killing me, Smalls.
0: That's exactly <laughs> it. And that's all I got to say. It's a 1993 cult classic, The Sandlot. Fucking fantastic movie. I think the, the one nice part about these timepieces, anything that doesn't have technology in it, I feel like doesn't age like, yeah. you can't fuck it up. You can always go back. Like, stand by me. I can watch till I'm 100 years old. Wendy Peffercorn never ages. No. I've, well, that's weird. That's weird now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, No, that's, she doesn't. That's if good. you
1: go back and watch the movie, she's the same age now as she was when I watched it in 93. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I get what you're saying, but theoretically, that's wrong. Remember, <laughs> I'm high all
1: the time, man. So <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is
0: true. All right, so who's up next?
1: All right, I'll go next. I'll tell you what, guys. My movie for this one stars the beautiful Hillary Summers. You're going to know her from such feature films as Flash in 1982's Beauty and the Beast. And, of course, Urban Cowgirls. It also has Eric Edwards, who you're going to know from Twin Peaks and Night of the Living Bed. And a gentleman you will know from a little movie called Ghostbusters, Mr. Ron Jeremy. Released April 23rd, 1980, a young woman ingratiates herself with a movie star and then takes all she can from her. I give you the adult film, The Budding of Brie, rated X.
3: <laughs> For the first time <laughs> in like
1: decades,
3: a
0: porno has been dropped.
1: <laughs> April 1980 did not have some of the best movie releases. The best one I could find to note was uh, Where the Buffalo Roam with Bill Murray. But, you know, that's not even the best movie about Hunter S. Thompson. So, you know what?
2: Can't masturbate to that. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) you are in quarantine.
1: (laughs) The Budding of Bree was directed by Henry Packard. And, guys, I don't know who your favorite directors are, but I can guarantee he does not have the body of work of Henry Packard, who has 364 credits to his name. And, of course, the legendary Ron Jeremy, who has almost 1,600 films to his name. His IMDb page is almost as long as his schlong. (laughs) So I give you The Budding of Brie, released in April of 1980. Just a groundbreaking film, I'll tell (laughs) you. It's a hymen breaking. Yeah, it's so (laughs) got groundbreaking. It's really hard to find a copy of it. Matter of fact, the movie itself was shot on thirty five millimeter, so you know it's quality. Uh, If you go on to YouTube and look up the budding of brie, somebody has actually edited the whole movie together minus all the fucking scenes, and it's only about five minutes long. So enjoy. (laughs) It's got a very young Ron Jeremy in it. You can't go wrong. The budding of brie, April of nineteen eighty. Joe, what do you got, man?
2: I got a little bit of an erection now, but I think I can get past (laughs) it while we can talk about this movie. (laughs) All right. Um, I will see your uh, prolific director, and I'll give you another one. I want to talk about Ridley Scott for a minute. Uh, He's a couple years removed from his previous movie of Blade Runner. Uh, He directed some shorts in between that, and he also directed Apple's uh, 1984 commercial, Uh, but he had another... Movie he was making uh, across the pond, and it was that was actually released in December of '85. But in the US, it was released April 18th of 1986, and that is the movie Legend. Starring Tom Cruise, Tim Curry, the uh, feature film debut of Mia Sarah, best known for Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and everybody's favorite LP, Billy Barty. Uh, It's about a young man named Jack who has to stop the Lord of Darkness from turning uh, the world into darkness by killing unicorns and stealing their horns and a lot of awesome fantasy stuff like that. Uh, It did win a Best Cinematography Award. It got a lot of uh, praise for its... uh, beautiful look and all that stuff. It wasn't a gigantic success uh in the box office. It became more of a cult hit afterwards when it came out on VHS. And it's just, it's one of those ones when it comes on, I still, I still pop it on and I'm like, Hey man, like it's to see young Tom Cruise before he was Tom Cruise uh, is kind of a, a mind blower. And uh yeah, it's a great one. Legend, April 18th.
3: All right, let's go down to Judge Dave Schultz. Okie dokie. I mean, Mac, bringing up porn. Holy <laughs> Mac <mackinoli>. and You know, <laughs> the balls in this guy. Uh, well, hey, hey, now, uh, you know, the thing is, you said that you could only find a version of it on YouTube without all the uh, fucking in it, right? Well, of course, they're not going to have all the fucking on YouTube. Right. But did you watch it? Yes,
1: you did. Yeah. OK. Did you like it? Absolutely not. The, oh. uh, the production, quality. I mean, it's 35 millimeter porn with Ron Jeremy acting. What do you think? Well, I'll it's tell not you. exactly Martin Scorsese here. I but.
3: happen to have a copy of Budding of Brie on two CD-ROMs. I want to sell to you for a very low price. Five dollar. Five dollar. What do you say, Mac? You want to win this round? That yeah. is amazing.
2: And it's CD-ROM. The seventh guest brought us this moment. <laughs> <laughs>
3: see? You see that? He'll even give you the caddy. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, The Sandlot, 1993. God, I hated that movie. I can't believe it's it's a cult classic. What? I don't. I never liked The Sandlot. I never really enjoyed it. I always thought it was about this fucking kid who's a pussy who's afraid to fucking get a ball from his neighbor's fucking yard because he's got a big dog. It's like, just jump over the fence, you piece of shit. Grab the fucking ball. Movie's over. Biggity-bam, biggity-boom. I think you missed the whole point of that movie, dude. Yeah, I did. Totally did. <laughs> oh, a coming-of-age story in the, in the summer. And, oh, my mom ha- uh, married a new guy, and I'm going to adjust to life. Yeah, fuck all that shit. Just jump over the fence and grab the goddamn ball. <laughs> that's it, you know? But If if
0: he didn't, though, then you would never get Benny the Jet, because that's how he got his nickname. Yeah, well. I... well. So it destroys the whole story.
3: Thanks, Dave. Sorry,
0: that's what I'm here for.
3: Okay, so now on to 1986. Legend. Tim Curry is absolutely fucking terrifying. You mentioned that wasn't a big box office hit, so it really doesn't. It doesn't have the same status as The Sandlot. But I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up this is that Man Crush mentioned how you know it's like a period piece, right? He he looks back and he goes, "Oh well, I like this movie because it reminds me." of a more innocent time, and even if I didn't really necessarily live in that era, it still brings warm, joy, happy feelings that that ring over me. Right, Man Crush? Sandlot? Of course. Well, well, yes, but I am going to say the same thing for me in Legend. I know Legend isn't a period piece, but even though I don't think it's a good film, when it's on, I am compelled to watch it. I, I cannot not watch it because it's from my youth.
1: And I wouldn't want to watch the budding of Brie if it was a period piece.
2: <laughs> I saw that coming a billion miles away. Did you? You should have stopped
3: him then. <laughs> All right. So, I'm just a guest here. Yeah, you are. <laughs> uh, you know, this one, again, you guys are great, man. This is fucking uh, a tough call. And I think your Facebook group is going to really have a fucking field day on this one. But for nostalgic reasons and... The young Tom Cruise and of course Sloan. Oh, Sloan she's in this film. I'm going with uh, Joe in 1986. Oh, I would have went with the porn.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he already owns it, so what's
3: but up? I do. It's a yeah, that
0: and for that reason alone, I think you should have given Mark a little bit. Of extra. Well, my caddy out. doesn't
3: work anymore because of that film. <laughs> it's it's stuck. No, but it, had Mark seen the film with the boning in it, that would have been some hardcore research worth rewarding. <laughs>
0: Would you want to know that Mark watched that movie?
3: I, no, I want to know that he tracked it down. I want to know he hit the streets during this fucking coronavirus lockdown looking for a fucking porn from 1980. 35 on 35 millimeter. 35
1: millimeter. Yes.
0: Just picture Mark with his fucking face mask on, going to like these little thrift shops and poking his head in. Yeah.
1: You got Bud and brie? No? All right. But without the face mask on, I'd be like, Do we have
0: the (laughs) bourbon, bro? Like, do we have creme brulee? No, (laughs)
3: it's not a restaurant. This guy has a boner. Kick him out of this pawn shop.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Again? Come on, get out of here! All right, Joe Finley, you win that round, and you take control of the board. Where are we going next? We're our first
2: two-point round. As they're both two points, I guess it really doesn't matter. This is usually where I get to choose, is when it doesn't make a difference. Uh, but I am gonna—I'll guess I'll go ahead and go with music. I want to talk about April 1st. And this is not a joke. A little bit of background. A man named Maurice Starr, who had uh, recently discovered New Edition, uh, discovered in Dorchester, Massachusetts, this 15-year-old boy who he thought was a really good rapper, and wanted to put together a boy band. And so he took this guy and he uh, suggested some of his friends and actually his little brother Mark uh, at the at the time was uh, part of this band. Uh, it had uh, changed around a little bit, some uh, personnel changes uh, here and there. But it got us to 1986, April 1st, when New, K- New Kids on the Block debuted their very first album, self-titled it's New Kids on the Block. It featured... The lineup that we know of Donnie Wahlberg, Jordan and Jonathan Knight, Danny Wood and Joey McIntyre. But that wasn't a joke. Mark Wahlberg was one of the original members of the band and he left the band before they ever made an album. Uh So, yeah, Maurice Starr, who had created New Edition, helped uh, Donnie Wahlberg create this band and he wrote most of the songs. And uh it was... A fairly regional thing, Uh, it got regional airplay, they did regional touring and they did all that, but it did well enough that they were able to convince the uh, record company to let them make their sophomore album, which was Hangin' Tough, which is what, you know, launched them into the stratosphere. So, the debut of NKOTB, uh, somebody who is still around, still touring. For, you know, whatever reason, and still marrying people I had playboys of uh, Donnie Wahlberg with, <laughs> with <laughs> Jenny McCarthy there. Uh, so, yeah, New Kids on the Block debut into the world on April 1st. I remember I had the, uh, the
0: other album. The Hang Was it Hang Tough? Hang Tough. Yeah. One. yeah, I had that a couple months back. And I remember, you know, talking about how the record company was going to, like, kick them to the curb because that album was so shitty that they almost didn't get that second album was actually yeah. what the story was and they like they kind of uh what's it i keep what i call that guy patrick star what the fuck's his <laughs> maurice name is star maurice star he's not the fucking starfish from spongebob no. but i guess he like sold it all up and was like you know these guys are gonna be good and yeah. sure enough you know they they went fucking gangbusters on the next one
3: joe's lead into the whole maurice star discovering nkotb was a little bit creepier than uh max <laughs> wendy peppercorn obsession <laughs>
0: He met a young man who can rap (laughs) And he introduced him to his little brother And
3: his friends
0: (laughs) Marky
2: Find me a boy band that doesn't feature some old man Finding a young boy (laughs)
0: He took him to the bike shops to take photos (laughs) Show him his new camera
1: Man, if Mark Wahlberg would have stayed with that band Can you imagine how famous he'd be today?
0: Oh man, can you imagine?
1: Wow, man He would have had a big career
0: He probably would have, like, a burger store.
1: Right.
2: Transformers Revenge of the Fallen might not have happened. Yeah, he could have saved us from that piece of shit. (laughs) Yeah.
1: All right, so we're on the music round. Man, guys, I'll tell you, I had a real Sophie's Choice for April of 1980. Because, of course, for this triple threat round, we only could pick one album. So I passed up on an album. That's one of my all-time favorite albums. Matter of fact, it's the album that gave us a song that I named my cat after. But we're not even going to talk about The Grateful Dead on this one. Cause Thank Because I found another album that was released in <laughs> April of 1980. If you're talking about Dead, you got to talk about Eddie. And we're talking about the debut of Iron Maiden. We're talking about the very first album, self-entitled Iron Maiden. This was the album that started everything. Steve Harris said that this album was actually completed in just 13 days in recording. And then Iron Maiden took to a tour of Europe and England, and this was actually the first time they ever played mainland Europe. And to their surprise, they were actually popular outside of the UK. Matter of fact, Iron Maiden, touring-wise, is one of the most popular bands in the entire world. They'll draw 60,000, 70,000 people all throughout South America, all throughout Europe, uh, and it kind of all started with this album. Uh, Paul Deano was the original vocalist, and he was the vocalist on this album. Their big single from that album was Running Free, and Paul Deano says that the song's actually very autobiographical. Of course, he says he's never spent a night in an L.A. jail, but it is about being 16 and just running wild and free. Then he goes on to say, yeah, it's about my skinhead days. So, yeah, okay. (laughs) So, Iron Maiden, man. I mean, this album is just absolutely massive. If you look at some of the songs that are still played off this album, "Fan of the Opera, Running Free, Sanctuary, and, of course, Iron Maiden itself all played in ev- almost every concert they played in. Matter of fact, Iron Maiden, the song itself, has been played in every concert of the band, and it signifies when Eddie comes out on the stage at the end of the show. Of course, Eddie being the undead mascot of Iron Maiden. So that's what I got from my pick. The start of Iron Maiden, April of 1980.
0: I like how you didn't mention Bruce Dickinson one time through that whole diatribe. He wasn't
1: part of the band, <laughs> yeah, because that's the when they
0: fucking took off
1: in '82. Correct, and I, I <laughs> I'm a big fan of Bruce Dickinson. I know you had him a couple episodes back, uh, but you know this was Paul. But Deano's it all starts Iron. here, right? This was yeah. Paul Diano's Iron Maiden. That this was the the foundations of the band. So that's yeah, what I got, man. Crush, what do you got, man?
0: All right, so uh, let's go April 6th, 1993. Uh, this is this band, just like Mark's, is their debut full length album. Uh, and I still remember how I acquired this. I still have tons. I have like hundreds and hundreds of CDs, probably like close to a thousand, just collecting dust. Yeah, but
1: that's good because they don't scratch.
0: <laughs> well, they, I don't <laughs> even move them. I don't even it's not even po- the way that I have them stacked, it's not even possible to get to any of them. Uh, but I was in like every CD club known to man at the time, BMG, Columbia house. And then I had friends that, you know, they worked at like local, like record stores, like media play and shit like that. So they would give me their discount. So I'd have those. I was on like bulletin boards, like BBS's back in the day. And, uh, there was these message boards where you can like locally, like kind of trade or swap CDs with other people. So you can get rid of that. Mark and I were talking about this the other day where Sometimes with BMG or Columbia house, you just get fucked and they'd send you some CD that you didn't want, but you were too slow to contact them. So you just get it. So I would take those CDs and I'd always go to this board and be like, Hey, I got this, this, and this trade for whatever. I remember to this day I had, I got a far side CD. I don't remember which far side CD it was, but it was like early nineties. So I had this far side CD and there's this guy on there and he was looking for rap and hip hop. So I was like, "Yeah, if you got rock, you know, I'll trade you." And he shows up. We we met at the Galleria, and he showed up with uh, "Sound of White Noise" from Anthrax, Great album. and and this album. All right, so he traded both both of these fucking amazing albums for fucking side, which I never even listened to. It was like still new in the package. Uh, but anyhow, this album it featured two singles. Uh, it ended up going double platinum, which is to me is a bit shocking. Because I figured it would have sold way more because this is an iconic album. Uh, it's one of those CDs that like, you could listen to all the way. It's got 10 tracks on it. And you would listen to all 10 tracks without stopping. It doesn't matter what the singles are. It's an amazing album. I know people bust my balls over owning physical media still. But this band didn't even start to stream until last summer. So you couldn't even listen to these songs in your car like Sober or Prison Sex or Bottom or Undertow without owning some kind of physical media or some kind of medium that you could play in your car because they weren't on spotify or anything they just toured this past year and this show was sold out like everywhere and these weren't like little venues they were playing big ass places like the Staples center and shit last year yeah and of course if you haven't figured this one out it's tool and it, the album is under tow. they got a loyal following and it all began here I know like some people are going to be like, "Oh, well, you know, OBA was their first cuz there's always somebody that has to oh, well with their fucking head bob. Yeah. like, well, <laughs> technically. technically. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? That only had fucking six tracks, so it's not a full fucking full-length album and they weren't recorded in the studio either. So, that's why I say Undertow is their first full-length album. So, and it's this is a fucking amazing album. I don't know if you guys are big fans of Tool, but like when I got this and this was in the summer of 93 when I picked this up because it was right after Sound of White Noise because I remember that was like brand new when he gave it to me. And they, but they were both like new and plastic, and I had heard Sober already and shit, yeah. and I just remember re- listening to the rest of the CD and like it blew my mind. I was like, it's fucking amazing. Yeah, that's what I got. So it's Undertow, sure. released April 6, 1993.
2: Yes. I'm a big Tool fan. That's why I like the budding of Bree so much. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, well, let's see what our judge, Dave Schultz, has to say about this round.
3: Okay, well, Man Crush kind of blew my mind twice here because it, it kind of relates to Mark's pick here with Iron Maiden. So let me let me tell a story, if you will, is that, and this is where everything gets kind of crazy, is that you brought up the music clubs, right? BMG, Columbia House, you were a member of all of them. Well, what was the third one? There was another one, but
0: I couldn't remember the fucking name of it. Like brain fart.
3: I, I don't know. I used to smoke as much weed as Mike does now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of hard for me to remember. But I'm pretty sure everybody else does remember or participated in the scam where you would sign up for these CD clubs to a P.O. box. Did anybody else do this? Or Dirt. Yeah. Okay.
0: And get the big ass box and then just <laughs> there, you'd be
3: gone. Yeah. And then you just close your P.O. box and they got fucked. So they may have sent you the Far Side CD, but they got plenty fucking bent over, too. Trust you, me. But beyond all this, I used to do something very similar also at my local library, where I forget to return a library book, and rather than pay, I just go and sign up for a new library card. And one time, (laughs) when I did that, I used (laughs) to use aliases, and one time I used David Dickinson, Inspired by Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden. And I, I might still have that somewhere. The David Dickinson Massachusetts library card. I probably shouldn't have mentioned the town because I oh monumental amounts <laughs> of money. Bleep that out, Mark. Yeah, I'll, I'll bleep it. Bleep that one. They're going to come after me. Um, also, uh, quickly, 1993, the Tool pick. I like Tool, but when I saw them live, I hated them and I haven't listened to them since. Really? Yep. Wow. I, they're the worst band to ever go drunk to a show because they have these really long segments of their songs, as most of you know, which are very artsy, fartsy, and just doesn't really, uh, they're not conducive to someone who's just like- Fucked up? Get Well, getting hammered, you know? <laughs> yeah. You're like, come on, dude, I'm falling asleep over here, you know? So, hey. It's kind of like the metal version of Pink Floyd. Yes. You think? Yeah. Yeah, the mind fuckery.
1: Yeah, they often called Tool math metal just because of, you know, some of the timings and intricacies of the music. It's actually, from a composition standpoint, it's kind mm. of mind-blowing for heavy metal.
3: Well, I failed algebra three times in high school, so maybe that, <laughs> that explains the whole thing here. Uh, Joe with NKOTB as a Massachusetts born and bred resident. I don't live there anymore, and that is all NKOTB's fault. <laughs> i had to leave the state to disassociate myself with that fucking terrible group but i will say this that phenomenon and i think we've even talked about this while i was a judge in this show before yeah yep it was just unfucking believable so um ooh, great choices as creepy as the whole maurice Starr finding little boys and Doing, I don't know, making rock stars out of them, I guess. I was going to say something much more perverse, but I, I don't want to do that. I don't <laughs> want to sound like Mac. I'm actually going to go with 86 on this one. Wow. Yep.
0: You completely discounted Mark's pick altogether. Did
3: not even mention it. (laughs)
0: No. Except for the fact that you had a library card named Dave Dickinson.
3: Who wasn't even in the band. (laughs) He didn't mention Bruce Dickinson during that whole thing.
1: It's because he wasn't in the band.
3: I know. I I know he wasn't in the fucking band, Mark. I get it. The skinhead was in the fucking band. I understand, but still, that you know, when you look back on the great Iron Maiden records, I understand there's a debut, but how many people cite that one in particular as being the all-time great? It may have been the beginning, the start, the seed, whatever the hell you want to call it, but it's not. It's not the first one that comes to mind. Matter
1: of fact, it's actually considered one of the two best Iron Maiden albums. The other one being Number of the Beast.
3: But well, who who is this? Mm. What is this Rotten Tomatoes music site you're looking at, or whatever? <laughs>
1: Actually, no, this was Rolling Stone, who oh, listed it as one of the 100, oh, wow. 100 greatest albums of all time.
3: Oh, well, good for Rolling Stone. All I got to say to them <laughs> is,
2: Seven son of a seven son! Seven son of a seven
3: son! <laughs> and that wasn't on that record, so fuck 'em.
1: No, it wasn't. <laughs>
3: <laughs> all right, so Joe, uh, Joe
0: has control of the board. And he takes a lead! Yeah, Joe takes the lead. Joe's up three to two.
2: When you're in a three-way, it's best to come from behind. (laughs) Uh,
1: It's how you finish. Joe knows from experience. (laughs)
2: Yeah. After thinking long and hard about this, I think I'm going to choose news.
1: How'd you come up with that?
2: I don't know. It was, I I didn't even just a little background. I already told the guys this. I did the wrong year when I did my research. I was so friggin tired uh, when I was doing it. And then it was my wife who actually reminded me that I was doing the wrong year so I could get the right stuff ready in time for the show. So that's where I'm at.
0: Joe, 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 Joe. All right, Joe, what do you got for fucking
2: news? All right. So towards the end of the month, April 26th of 1986, uh, a power plant, I was having a safety test and that safety test went awfully wrong they cut the power to uh, reactor 4 and never was able to get it back on and the reactor superheated a steam explosion a large fire massive evacuations i'm talking of course about the chernobyl power plant accident in the ukraine uh 28 people within the first couple months of the accident had died from the radiation poisoning another 134 people were in the were in the hospital from acute uh, radiation poisoning uh over 350,000 people in the surrounding area had to be per- permanently evacuated from their homes uh to this day 3.5 million Ukrainians receive special benefits for uh that uh from the government from receiving different uh radiation sicknesses and uh, thi- and things related to that according to experts it could potentially be cer- certain areas it could be hundreds of years before you're even allowed to go back there uh and it is considered the largest nuclear accident to date uh fukushima being a close second uh as it was but it is Again, a very well-known thing. Obviously, HBO just did their special talking all about this. And uh, there was a lot of deal with uh, cover-up and late reports on, uh, on this stuff in the Soviet Union at the time. And, yeah, just a gigantic deal if you want a story with legs. This one's got extra ones because of all the radioactive <laughs> deformities. <laughs> so <laughs>
0: you have to count on Joe to bring the fucking sadness. I know. And then do
2: it in the last round. Well, and that's I was I was say I was really I was getting you happy so I could make you real sad at the end, uh. But but yeah, that's where I'm at. Chernobyl has its massive reactor meltdown on April 26th.
1: All right. So for my news story, man, I've been waiting for this news story to come up for a long time, and I was doing research for this show, and I'm, for some reason this just popped in my mind, and I'm like, man, when did that take place? And of course. It was on April 21st, 1980. I know we don't talk about sports too much on this show anymore, but we're going to talk about sports. And not just any sport, we're going to talk about running. One that's never come up. We're going to talk about the Boston Marathon. April 21st, 1980. Rosie Ruiz runs the Boston Marathon and she wins with an incredible time of 2 hours, 31 minutes, and 56 seconds. Matter of fact, her time would have been the fastest time in Boston Marathon history for a female and the third fastest time overall of any marathon. So what's remarkable about her win is while Rosie Ruiz kind of cheated to win, she kind of just ducked out from the crowd near the uh, finish line wearing a number on her chest. She actually qualified for the Boston Marathon because she was in the New York City Marathon, and she only got a pass into the New York City Marathon because she claimed that she was dying of brain cancer. Her time of 2 hours, 31 minutes, and 56 seconds was an unusual improvement. It was actually more than 25 minutes faster than her time from the New York City Marathon just six months earlier. Matter of fact, in the post-race press conference, they were asking her questions about intervals in her training regimen, And she had absolutely no clue what intervals were. She actually asked the reporter, what are intervals? Another reporter just asked me that. And of course, if you improved your time in six months by 25 minutes in a marathon, you know what intervals were. She had no sweat coming off of her. She didn't have the normal runner's legs. So unfortunately this story probably doesn't have great legs either, but Rosie Ruiz Cheats to win the Boston Marathon. Of course, she got caught. They stripped her of her finish from the New York race in her win from the Boston Marathon. And unfortunately, Rosa Ruiz did die of cancer, but in 2019, mind you. So she was uh, arrested in 1982 for embezzling $60,000 from a real estate company. And then, of course, she moved to the great state of Florida where she was involved in a cocaine deal in 1983. So that's what I got for the final news round. Rosie Ruiz cheating to win the Boston Marathon.
0: Oh, man. That's fucking good. That's pretty good. I thought you were going to say, because, you know, like back in the day, like, and this is probably like just prior to 1980. They thought that women couldn't run marathons because they thought their uterus would fall out. So I thought this story <laughs> was going to be like, no, it really happened. Her it really uterus,
3: happened.
0: <laughs>
2: mile 18. It just fucking dropped out. I don't have a uterus, but I won't risk it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Joe's heard all about these rumors. He ain't fucking running twenty six miles. It's that point two that throws you off. Okay, so, uh, you know I'm gonna cap this one off with a little sadness of my own. April nineteenth, ninety 1993, and I'm laughing and I shouldn't be. After a fifty one day siege by the FBI, seventy six Branch Davidians die in a fire near Waco, Texas including 25 children, two pregnant women, and David Koresh. Only nine people escaped the building during the fire. The rest were either suffocated, burned alive, crushed by debris, or shot. Uh, It's a real fucked up situation that unfolded for two months on live television. If you were alive in 1993, the shit was on every day. It was on everything. It was on television. It was on the fucking radio. Like, matter of fact, we used to listen to... um, uh, K-Rock is the one that was in L.A. There was another something rock. It was another like national. Maybe it was K-Rock. I don't remember. But they took their music. It was like a hard rock rock station. And that was one of the things that they were blasting out the speakers at all hours of the day to piss off the people of Camp Davidia. <laughs> and uh, so they used to talk about it on this station all the time. It, I don't think it was. K- K-Rock is definitely the one in L.A. So I can't remember. Somebody that listens to the show, if you remember what that station was, let me know. I'm fucking old. Um, but, yeah, it, it was a crazy time for us, though, because a couple of years prior to that, we lived like an entire war on television. Like Desert Storm and Desert Shield, whatever the fuck they called it. Like that was nonstop. We saw that whole war on television. And then two years later, we see this whole war on our own Land, like right. domestic war going on for two months between the FBI, the ATF, and the, the Camp Davidians. Uh, but the story that I have here it says, uh, Dying in a Raging Fire is a gruesome death to choose. But cult experts say Monday suicide by more than 80 branch Davidians indicates the depth of the hold that David Koresh had over his followers. Still severed. At, this is from the day after it happened. This is like Tuesday morning. Uh, Still, several experts believe investigators probably will find bullets in some of the bodies beneath the compound rubble. Uh, There's two feasible situations. Either they were willingly, they went willingly into the flames or they were forced to go there by guards or by Koresh, said Marsha Rudin, the director of the International Cult Education Project in New York City. Never fucking heard of it. Uh, Monday's mass suicide near Waco has drawn comparison to the 1978 suicide murder of 912 followers of Jim Jones in the jungle of Guana South America it w- but this was a big fucking deal i mean this was on television so much and it came out of nowhere yeah it was like yeah the war just ended you know we got like a little time or we're just watching mtv and then boom this was on every channel mtv used to fucking have like updates on this shit and they were just every single day i actually have i'm not going to go through it but uh, I clipped it out of the, the paper from the day after, and it's a timeline of all the shit that happened during this. And at first, when I started clipping it, I was like, ah, it's not too bad. There's probably just like five or six highlighted things. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. There's 26 like bullet points of different like highlighted things that happen during that 2 month period. Wow. It's fucking crazy.
1: Yeah, I remember watching that on TV, man. It was that was insane to see. It when the really tank was. rolls through that building.
0: Yep, and they like remember he had like a Camaro, like his prized Camaro, and they like fucking ran into it. Like they were do- they pulled the the book out on this and tried
1: everything. And I think, you know, you you bring up and it's kind of funny that we had just seen all this footage of the war. Really, what we were able to see during Desert Storm, that was war coverage like we had never had before. Maybe, you know, the American audience was a little desensitized to that, and it wasn't as shocking as it would have been before.
0: Yeah, because you saw the full fire.
1: Right, exactly. When that fire
0: out, it was was on television.
1: They showed everything. They showed the fire, the buildings burning, the tank crashing through the building. The only thing they didn't show was people on fire burning and running out of the building. Because they didn't. They were already dead.
0: Yep. So. And it's all shit. Like, you know, like, when we look at stuff now, we look back to, like, the 1950s and 1960s on television. We're like, oh, they couldn't do that on TV. And then you think about it now, like, you would think by now we'd see all kinds of crazy shit on television or in the media. But, no, I think all the fucked up shit was more in the 90s. Oh, yeah. yeah. In the late 80s. Yeah.
3: Say a year and later, then, you had OJ in the high-speed chase. Yeah. Exactly. You know, all yeah.
0: that's gone. They they don't really do that anymore. Now it's it's just a bunch of, like, you know, propaganda shit on every fucking channel. Whereas then it was just raw, like, fuck it, like Geraldo shit. Like, put it on the air. Why not? Nazis, sure. Fucking throw them on TV. Yeah. You know, it was, it was just a crazy yeah. fucking time. You couldn't do that now. You couldn't have fucking cameras rolling for two months outside of a fucking, like, Camp Davidian. so Well, you couldn't because it's burnt down. But, like, if it was another <laughs> one, you know, you couldn't have that either. You know, it's I don't it's know, just, man. I don't know. It's crazy.
1: crazy. Uh, let's just get a compound and try it out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, I'm already held up indoors. What's the big deal?
0: <laughs> Would it be like, hey, can you guys turn that K
1: Rock up a little bit? Yeah. Turn it up, man.
3: <laughs> <laughs> this episode has revealed just how creepy Mac really is. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> this whole show, all the shit you're revealing, and now you're like, let's start a compound. Oh, boy. <laughs> Wendy Peppercorn will be there.
2: Yeah. yeah, you did just kind of impulsively start a cult. <laughs> what,
1: what else is going to happen when you're quarantined for over a month, dude? We're already all yeah. in a cult. I don't
3: know. I've been baking a lot of bread. <laughs> Bring the cameras outside of Mark's house while he's in quarantine. We can watch that for two months instead. <laughs>
1: I'll let you know when the fires start raging,
3: Dave. He's just smoking all day. <laughs> there is smoke coming out of the bedroom window. I repeat, there is smoke coming out of the bedroom window. It's
0: still coming out of the bedroom window. <laughs> it's still coming out. Whatever's in there was definitely dead. <laughs> His wife just walks outside like she's doing shit. She's
3: like well, I don't know what's going on, but the fire is still going. It's just Maggie smoking weed. Go away.
0: It's like sleeping cows in the fields and
3: shit. (laughs) Hey, you leave my cows alone. We now, we're witnessing his cat that he named after a Grateful Dead song. We see him now in the window as well. He is alive, ladies and gentlemen. News at 11.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All
0: right. Well, wrap this one up, Mark.
3: All right, let's go down
1: to judge Dave Schultz for the final ruling on this triple threat match.
3: Groovy, groovy, groovy. 1986. Joe, you mentioned uh, Fukushima. Now, was that the second largest or did that Trump I shouldn't say the word Trump defeat Chernobyl?
2: <laughs> no, it was it's considered the second largest.
3: Woo, thank God Chern- Chernobyl didn't need to change any of their signs. This is wonderful. <laughs> okay, that's great. We're still the the number one uh nuclear disaster site in the world. Uh 1980, Matt came with the Boston Marathon. Um I mean, almost similar to Joe's mention of NKOTB earlier, growing up there who didn't know about Rosie Ruiz, she's a personal hero of mine. I mean, for Christ's sake. She sakes. ran a whole marathon without a uterus. <laughs> without a uterus <laughs> without actually running or even breaking a one single bead of sweat. She's just a pathological liar. And it was beautiful. you ain't cheating. you ain't trying. Oh my God. What a wonderful thing. 1993 Waco. I mean, what is there else to, what else is there to say about this? You know, there is one thing. Tim Daly starred in the TV movie and played David Koresh. Wow. From wings. Yes. From wings. It's a deep cut. It is. But I (laughs) love, at the time I loved that movie. But uh, unfortunately, it's on 35 millimeter film, and it's really hard to find now.
1: You can get, all, you can get the whole thing edited down without the fuck scenes on YouTube. Oh, <laughs> no, you oh, can Mac.
3: get only the fuck scenes. Oh, my, this <laughs> made this so
0: much worse. Mack wants to see the
1: fuck <laughs> scenes from
0: Waco. You <laughs> disgusting You can put the fuck scenes from the Tim Daly movie <laughs> into the cut version of Budding Bree, or whatever the
3: fuck it was called. <laughs> Got a mashup. Oh, Christ, that's terrible.
2: How many CD-ROMs does that fit on? <laughs> it's going
3: to be just, more than that's two. That's one.
0: Nah, you can get that at one. 700, what was it, 660 megs? Yeah, you got to like?
1: zip it, it
3: first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you better zip it before the CIA shows up at your door there, Mark. Okay, so I'm looking at all three of these. They're all very impressive. Chernobyl, of course, being the most fucking depressing. Uh, Waco, of course, is no ray of sunshine either. You know, living in Texas now, the first time I passed by Waco, because being a, a kid in the early 90s or a teenager rather, I mean, I was gripped by this. I thought it was an amazing news story. I was hook, line, and sinker, like everybody else. So when I first went there, I was like, "Wow, this is so weird that I'm here." And I saw this on TV, all you know, so many years ago. Now I didn't go to the the site that it happened. I mean, I'm just fucking driving through. But even then, the history yeah. of that, you know, kind of affects you. You know what I mean? Is that that's like a is it a suburb or something, or is that out in the middle of nowhere? No, no, no. It's it's not very far from Dallas. As a matter of fact, it's only I want to say, and I could be wrong, about two and a half, maybe three hours away. They have a, I believe, like the Dr Pepper Museum is there, so you can go check out some uh, smoldering ashes and and refresh yourself with some <laughs> Dr Pepper and, and cream soda or something. But anyway, still pretty pretty wild stuff and. Guys, you really brought it this, this show. I am proud of all of you. Big pats on the back. But, uh, man crush, you win this round. I believe you win wow. the whole damn kit and caboodle with, uh, Waco in 93. You know
0: what? I really like the format. You know, this was just kind of like, uh, we'll try it. We'll see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And I think everything steamrolls this way. I like it. Yeah. Uh, I think we'll bring this one back. You That's like fun. it because you won. Nah, you know what? Like um <laughs> we had this talk with Vernon Wells last week. Uh before we got on the show, we were telling him the rules and stuff. Like I used to get really upset, like when I lost just because I'm I'm very competitive. I don't really fucking care anymore. Because it's not me that you're judging on it. like it's the fucking time it, period. You it's know things I mean? that right. happened
2: that you can't, <laughs> I control. can't
1: have no fucking control of that. Well, let us know what you think about this new format. Head on over to our Facebook page, Facebook.com forward slash dueling decades. And then while you're on the interwebs, head on over to DuelingDecades.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, really, wherever podcasts are available. I want to thank our good friends for showing up this week. Joe, why don't you tell everybody what's going on on the Miscast Commentary podcast?
2: All right. Well, uh, Miscast Commentary, we're just wrapping up our uh, continuation of the uh, MCU marathon, uh, just the supplementary movies that have come out uh, this week. So we'll be finishing in about two weeks with... Spider-Man, Far From Home, and then we're going to be back to our old favorites from the 80s and 90s. But you can also check out our new podcast. It's on the same feed. It's called The Binge Watchers on the Wall, a Game of Thrones podcast, where I take my co-host Todd through Game of Thrones. He has never seen an episode. He doesn't know a single spoiler from the thing. He's reacting to the entire series as we go along, and then I try and explain it all to him as we do it. (laughs) (laughs) So those episodes drop Sunday, and then miscast commentary episodes drop on Friday.
1: All right, and our great judge, Dave Schultz, tell everyone what they can be hearing on The Selling Out Show.
3: Well, we just didn't celebrate episode number 50 because we forgot it was episode number 50. (laughs) But (laughs) we did pitch sequel ideas for Wayne's World number three, which never happened. That was my pitch. And my co-host, Nate, came up with a sitcom idea for Big Trouble in Little China. And you can find us on all your social medias and all that good stuff at Selling Out Show. I'd watch that. Yeah, I would too. Well, listen to my show first, okay? And then we'll see where we go from there. Yeah. Well, we
0: still have to flesh out the uh, the prequel to Over the Top. Yeah. So I don't want to like, yeah, I got to wait because I don't want to steal any ideas. <laughs> but that's got to be fleshed out. His whole trip to Mexico. How he gets into the arm wrestling, how his wife gets cancer from somewhere in Mexico, brings it back. Now we can have a whole pandemic angle. Come to find out that kid's
1: not even really his. It's not even his. (laughs) It's not.
0: It's (laughs) Loge's, which is really fucked up.
1: All right, Duelers. Well, on that note, we're going to end this episode right here. So until next time, Duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Stay safe, Duelers.
3: Infirmary Media.